All right, so, uh, man, what an exciting day that we would be in the book of John continuously, but that we are also starting and um, ending, rather, uh, the book of John. This is uh, perhaps one of my favorite scenes on this beach of, of Galilee. We talked a little bit about it last week, but we're in the middle of the same scene. And so um, if you are uh, new to this, um, particularly like a church thing, but also new to the Grove, this is something we've been saying, and now we'll say for the last time today, that the book of John was written for us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so in this passage are these reminders that life is only found in Christ and in Christ alone, not in managing life, not in prioritizing life, not in succeeding in life, not in creating a stable life, but only by what really obedience to this call to follow. And we're gonna hear that again today as we get reminded that the most important thing that we can do with our life is to follow Jesus. It's why our mission statement, not that we need one as an organization, but why it's helpful to be centered around a mission um, for us as a church is inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life. We are called to follow, and it's never more evident than in a passage like today. The issue is, though, that we don't always follow. The issue is, is that though we know the call to follow is continuously before us, we fall short of that command again and again and again and again. At least I do. I could raise my hand and go, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, it, it's just part of life, right? But what do we do when we fail? Better yet, what do we expect from God when we fail? I think if we were to evaluate how we act after a failure, whether that be a true sin failure, or I just didn't do what I knew what I was supposed to do. Maybe it's not quote unquote um, sin, but it's just, it's just a failure. Like I didn't do anything wrong. It just didn't work out. Did everything I was supposed to do, or at least I tried and it just didn't work. What do I do after those failures? What happens when things don't work out? What happens when I do sin? Don't we expect some kind of punishment? Don't we expect some sort of shame, some sort of belittlement from God, some sort of guilt we, that hangs on us? And so that's why it's, it's important that we have a weekly or a regular rhythm to come together as the saints of God. Get that off of us because in fact, it doesn't belong on us. It belongs on Jesus because he took our guilt. He took our shame. And we try and claim it back when we fail. And God is going to remind us through our passage today, it's his. He's gonna remind us through our passage today that our failure can lead to God's formation of something new in us. Our failure can lead and should lead to a formation in us. Specifically for Peter, what we're gonna find is humility. We're gonna find dependence. We're gonna find a kindness. We're gonna find a mercy in him and a compassion in him. And we know that because history bears his story. So if you remember last week, right, the, the, the disciples, whether through disobedience or through drifting, they go out on the waters in the night and they fish all night long only to get skunked. There's a stranger on the shore and he's lit a fire and they're kind of going, when did the fire get there? Who's the crazy man telling us to just put the net down on the right side of the boat? And oh my goodness, 153 fish are caught. They immediately know it's Jesus. It reminds them of when Jesus first called them on the docks on the shores of Galilee. Pete jumps in the water. He gets to the shoreline first. Everybody's there. Jesus looks at them and says, come sit and have breakfast with me. Breakfast tacos right here, the freshest kind. It's one of my favorite scenes, right? 
It's beautiful. And it's in the midst of that context that we pick up this conversation, right? Jesus says, come and have breakfast. They sit down. John says in verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then there's no context as to what they said over breakfast because 15 says, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus zeroes in on his guy, Peter. In the midst of his fishing buddies, Jesus starts to ask some questions of Peter. And so let's just, would you join me on the shores of Galilee this last time? Would you, would you just kind of center yourself around this fire with these breakfast tacos, your belly's full, hopefully. This has been the day to do breakfast tacos, but we didn't. The, like with your belly's full, right? And we're just, gonna, we're just gonna sit down and understand what Jesus is doing to Peter because he's not doing it necessarily to us, although we can apply some things, but we're there. We're witnessing this. What is Jesus up to in this context? Read with me verses 15, 16, and 17 to get us started. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yeah, man, I mean, like, I love you, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs, and then again, tend my sheep. Verse 17. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There is this command to feed the sheep. But before we get to that, we've got to understand what is going on. And really, before we get into the nuance of what's going on, he has a couple of different things he's going to ask him. The first thing he asks him is, do you love me more than these? What are the these? There's a comparative understanding to Peter's love that Jesus wants to root out. Do you love me more than these? Perhaps if you take the, the view that Jesus was being diso that. Peter was being disobedient and that he was going out and kind of giving up on Jesus and going back to his old life and, and fishing out there to provide for himself. Perhaps Jesus was asking him, hey, do you love me more than those fish? Do you love me when, when, when I get in the way of your vocation and, and call you out of that into something different? Do you love me more than these, Peter? That would be a legitimate way to see this. Another way, a legitimate way to see this is, do you love me more than these disciples? Because they're here too. These, do you love me more than these? Is your love for me greater than your love for your brothers? It's one way to say it as well. But I think what the heart of what Peter is getting to is what he's really trying to get Peter to get to is this. I think Jesus is asking Peter, do you really love me more than these guys love me? Why would he be landing on that? Why would he kind of really focus in on, do you really love me more than these disciples love me, Peter? Why would he do that? Remember Peter, our buddy, the, the foot and mouth disease guy. Like not hand, foot and mouth, just foot and mouth for Peter, right? He is the guy all throughout the scriptures and all throughout this story. Specifically, let's go to Matthew 26. It'll come up on the screen. Verses 31 to 34. I just want to read 31, 32, and 33 first. So you look at this, right? Look at what, what, why is he asking this? Jesus asks Peter, do you really love me more than these disciples love me? This is what he's bringing to mind. Then Jesus said to, to them, all of them, the night that he's going to die, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, look at this, I will go before you to Galilee. He was sitting on the shore. This is the promise that we're reading right now in John 21. Hey, this is all gonna go south tonight, but I'm gonna go before you to Galilee. And then we keep reading, verse 33. But Peter answered him, look, this all may go south for these guys, but look, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You can depend on me, Jesus. I'll be the guy that does what's right. I'll stick by you. And so Jesus kind of seeing all this, looking at Peter going, you really love me like that, Pete? Do you? Because history has shown yourself to really not love me that way. But when Peter says these things, could you imagine yourself being one of the other disciples, like on that night? Jesus is saying to all the disciples, all of you are gonna fall away, and Peter goes, look, these guys, they ain't nothing. They don't have it like I got it. I know you chose me for a reason. I got it. I got what it takes, Jesus. These guys don't, but I do. Could you imagine being one of the other 11th? What would your thought process be? Hey, Pete, uh, cool, man. Doesn't that kind of thing kill community when we think we're better than what we really are? Especially when we start to compare ourselves to our brothers and our sisters. See, Peter is posturing. And I'll just say this, posturing to prove yourself only reveals your insecurity. It only reveals, oh, I'll never do that. Oh, okay. Just give it some time, Jesus would say. Posturing to prove ourselves only reveals our insecurity. And this kind of thing absolutely kills true biblical spiritual community. It's called family. When we posture in community and pretend like we've got all the answers in life, we relate out of competence. That is not a fruit of the Spirit. We relate out of confidence, not out of patience, not out of love, not out of gentleness or kindness. We rarely show weakness. We rarely remain vulnerable or we become humble at all unless someone is there to see through the pretense. And the guy that's there and the original disciples, his name is Jesus. And when Peter says, I'll never fall away, the very next verse in that passage, verse 34, Jesus says to Peter, oh no, you won't ever fall away? Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So we come back, right? We come back to John 21, and what we start to see is that Jesus is crafty. He's just super crafty in what he's all about. Here's why. In John 18, Peter is around a fire. There's only two times this word is used in the Gospel of John. It's this charcoal fire. Peter's around this fire, he's warming his hands, and it's around that fire that he denies Jesus three times. We transport ourselves to John 21 on the shores of Galilee, and what kind of fire does Jesus have? It's a charcoal fire. It's the only time that those, that word is used in the gospel of John and, and all of a sudden you see Jesus craftily and purposefully setting some things up so that in Peter's mind, he's going to be transported back to his worst moment where he failed big time and emotionally been brought. Now he's sitting face to face with the risen savior and he's being asked by Jesus, do you really love me that way? Around a charcoal fire? He's being reminded of his failure so that he can be formed into what God is trying to do. But I'll say this, your failure is not 
the final word. What do we do? What do we do when we fail? We realize that, we, that failure is not final. Instead, it's in many ways the avenue, it is the door to our formation. I'm not saying go out and sin. You hear me? Like I'm not saying, okay, well, if, if we were formed by failure, might as well go out and sin. No, we can go out and fail for the glory of God. We cannot sin for the glory of God. We can go out and fail. That means we have to take risks. That means we gotta get beyond the security and the safety of what we have made the Christian life. It's not that. Right? Peter had a history of saying, I'm better than that, Jesus. You might think that about me. I'm gonna prove you wrong. See, we got an amen from the back. <laughs> history, though, proved otherwise, right? Jesus, though, Jesus, look, if you want to lead anyone in the Christian life and, and, and lend your ear, friends, you should. Not just you should, if you don't, you're disobedient to Jesus. He says that we are to make disciples. If you want to make disciples, Jesus is going to break you before he uses you. He's going to, to mend you with the grace of God to provide a mercy for you so you can relate in compassion for others, not in judgment of others. Because then you will know it's a lot harder to just follow Jesus experientially and not just with your mind. I mean, it seems hard for you. Jesus is breaking his man so that he can put him on a mission. God does not use prideful people. Instead, the Bible says he is opposed to prideful people. Instead, he uses dependent, humble, sober-minded people to accomplish his will upon the earth. See, this is a great challenge for us in the church, especially as we continue to gather for four and five and 40 and 50 years. We will start to get super familiar with this room, with this setup. We'll get familiar with one another, and then we're gonna start demanding things from each other emotionally because familiarity breeds entitlement. And all of a sudden, we're gonna want something because Dad Nabbit, I've put my time in. This is what happens in American Christianity, if you don't know that. Like we get to a point in our lives where we look back and go, I ain't doing that. I've put my time in over there. We'll let everybody else go make disciples. We'll let everybody else go hold the babies. We'll let everybody else do a road crew. I've already put my time in. We get entitled the more we do something because we think we've earned some good status. And what Jesus is going to do for Peter is that he's gonna break him down because he's gonna to continue to use him for his mission. This is a great challenge for us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Romans 12, verse three. In the midst, he's about to embark upon this, this beautiful passage on spiritual gifts and us all just digging in together. But before he does... He says this in Romans 12, three. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You think you're doing well in the Christian life? Praise God, because God's given you that faith. God's given you that victory. God's given you that continued steadfastness that you needed to continue to depend on Jesus. Praise God. Don't take credit for that. Think of yourselves with sober judgment. A sinner saved by the grace of God, dependent on the Holy Spirit to do any good work in me. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about, right? That's the only way that we can be gentle or humble or any of the other things that the Bible talks about, that we would be dependent 
thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. More often than not, that comes through failure. More often than not, that comes when we just blow our life up. And now, we don't relate to each other out of pride or out of what we think we are. We relate to each other out of humility. We relate to each other out of brokenness, out of the forgiveness that God has given us as a result of that failure. And all of a sudden, he's creating in us a more humble woman, a more humble man to be able to relate in compassion and mercy. See, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing for Peter, and that's why he continues to ask him, do you love me? Do you love me, Pete? Jesus is gonna tell Peter to feed his sheep, to tend the sheep of Jesus's flock. They're not Peter's flock, they're Jesus's flock. Because if you are going to lead others, and you should, again, if you're going to lead others, you first have to love Jesus. There is a priority to loving the risen Savior. We can't love one another without first loving him. Or better said, the way that Jesus said it in John 13, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. We get enraptured in this idea of just what God has done to love us. You and I cannot lead others to love Jesus if we don't love him first. We cannot, we can feed, here's like the deal for me. We could feed you ideas from this stage. We could give you like the best 10 methods to build your marriage. And some days we do. We could give you the best five ways to create, quote unquote, obedient children so that they may not depart from the way. We could do all that. We could do all that without the power of Jesus. We could give you leadership principles. We could do all those types of things. But what Peter is learning and what I pray we learn is this, and this is just my own thoughts. I could care less if your marriage is good I could care less if your children are obedient or disobedient if you don't love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, I don't care that your marriage looks good because that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate point of marriage. That's the ultimate point of children. That's the ultimate point of all of life that we would simply love Jesus more and more. Our affections would grow more and more over lifetime. So when you come in here, Please don't expect 10 methods for this, that, and the other. We might do that some days. Instead, what we want you to do, we want you to just get into the word. Understand what God's done for you again and again and again. That he came for you. Yeah, you. And we should be awed by that. (laughs) The God of heaven left heaven to come seeking after sinners like you and me to reconcile us to a good and perfect and beautiful God through his son Jesus, through the the sacrificial death of Jesus, again and again, we need to be enraptured by that idea. See, for us, Jesus doesn't want us to have, to to feast on the methods of life, on how to build a better life if we're gonna do that without Jesus. Instead, that we would come and feast on the bread that came down from heaven, the true manna sent from the Father, Jesus of Nazareth, that we would truly seek him, his kingdom, his righteousness first, and then everything else may be added after that. Jesus isn't, be, isn't done leading Peter. He's not also done leading us. He's asking these questions and he's using this nuance, right? This nuance of Greek language that I need us to understand. In English, it looks like he's saying the same, three, same thing three times. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? 
But in fact, in the Greek, he's using different language. He says this, do you agape me more than these? Do you agape me? Do you phileo me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But it looks completely different in the Greek language. So let me flesh this out for us. Do you agape me, Peter? Do you, will you sacrifice yourself for me, Peter? That's the kind of agape love. It's basically this. It's seeking the good of another at whatever expense to yourself. It is an outward action on behalf of another. You got that? That's what agape love looks like. That's John 3.16 kind of love. You know the kind of love that says this. For God so agaped the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's an external action that's going to cost you dearly but it's going to benefit someone else in an amazing way. It's the same thing that's commanded of you husbands in Ephesians 5. Husbands, agape your wife. Lay your life down for them. Just as Christ agaped the church and gave himself up for her. That's agape. It's this outward action for the benefit of another. But Jesus uses that only twice. The third time he asks, he says, do you phileo me? Phileo means this warm affection between friends, to treat another as family. Whereas agape is an outward, active sacrifice, phileo is a, an inward, warm affection. Those two things are different. So if you follow me into this dialogue, what I think Jesus is getting at is this. Peter, you said a lot of times here, in our three years on the earth, that you would lay your life down for me. You would agape me. How about now? How about now after your failure? How about now as you sit here with the risen Lord? Do you still think that you can love me that way? And when Jesus is asking that, he's saying, I agape you. And when Peter answers, when he says, you know that I love you, he says, you know that I phileo you. You know that I have warm affection for you. So will you lay your life down for me? You know I have warm affection for you, Jesus. Will you lay down your life for me? You know that I have warm affection for you, Jesus. Do you have warm affection for me, Peter? Oh, you know all things. You know that I have warm affection for you. Jesus is getting at this. You have said that you will lay your life down for me, but life has proven that you won't. You see, remember that denial over this charcoal fire, Pete? I'm not here to hang that over you. Instead, I'm here to pronounce a new thing over you and to lead you into something greater. And Peter is basically saying this, you know now I actually will not lay down my life for you. Just look back at the last month. You know I don't have agape for you. I, I really have a warm affection for you, Jesus. And finally, the third time that Jesus asked, he says, do you even really have that? And Peter says, yeah, yeah, I definitely have that. And Jesus restores him into ministry, brings him back into the circle. And when he does so, he says, feed my sheep, tend to my flock. 
See, Peter isn't diminishing his love for Jesus. Instead, you've got other passages that use this idea of phileo as something that is truly magnificent. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, if, Paul says this, if anyone has no phileo for the Lord, warm affection, a brotherly affection that you would treat God as your father, as, as part of your family, if you have no warm affection for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. You see, this phileo is still really important in the Christian life. So this is what's happening, right? Jesus is asking him, Peter, you still think you're gonna lay down your life for me? And Peter's basically saying, I don't think I have the fortitude to do that anymore, Lord. And then Jesus re says this in verse 18. Oh, Pete, now that we know that you have warm affection for me, and you don't think you're going to lay down your life for me anymore. You've, you've humbled yourself through this failure. Now, Pete, I got something to tell you in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, Pete, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter says, I don't think I have the fortitude to lay down my life for you. And Jesus actually goes, actually, you do, Pete. It's in you. You will agape me. You will lay your life down for me. Though you may have finally a good understanding with sober judgment on where you are, that you have a warm affection for me, there will come a day, Pete, where you will lay your life down for me. And of course, history proves this. If you don't know how history proves this, Peter was martyred under the first persecution of Nero somewhere between 64 and 68 AD in Rome. For 30 more years, Peter would toil and labor and minister with this prophecy over his head. One day, you're gonna die. One day, they're gonna stretch your arms. And one day, they did. Church history and tradition tell us that Peter was not just crucified, but that when they went to crucify him for spreading the gospel of Jesus, that he requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Further church tradition would tell us that Peter had a wife. Scriptures say that, but he had a wife. And while she was being martyred, because this is a family affair, while she was being martyred, he cried out to her and said, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. As he's dying and she's about to die, he's not only faithful for himself, but faithful enough for his wife as well, continuing to encourage her even unto her death. This man changed. He went from saying something to doing something. And those two things are oftentimes very different. With that prophecy hanging over him, what would you do if that prophecy was hanging over you? How would it change how you lived would, you make it, would, you, would, it, would it make you more bold for the gospel knowing how things are going to end? It would probably make you more bold if you knew that Jesus couldn't be wrong. But if you thought Jesus could be wrong, then you'd live a little differently. You'd check every risk. You'd check out every what if to ensure your own safety. But Peter instead lived faithfully. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, and ultimately crucified. Why? Why did he do all this, knowing it would end this way? Why do you follow Jesus? 
Why do you follow Jesus? So you can have a good life? So it can turn out really good? So I think that's the challenge for Peter, is that death is the only thing promised of him, actually martyrdom for the sake of Christ. And he says this in verse 18 at the end. This, is this, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, Peter. This is gonna get terrible. You follow me. Does this not fly in the face of most things you see on TV about Christ? It's not going to end up well, Pete. You follow me. Why do we follow Jesus, friends? Why do we obey him? Why do we want to honor him? Why do we die to ourselves? Why is that the constant call to a Christian to lay down our lives so that we can live for Christ? Or better yet, that his life may be born in us. Why is that the constant message? Not because the Bible says so, although that's true. Why do we obey? Is it so that our life will work out? Is it so that our husband or wife behaves the way that you want them to? Is it so our our kids will behave the way they want us to? Is it so that our bosses will give us that raise? We might say that is actually not in us, but Peter's, it is. On Friday, the number one story on my Apple News uh, was from a a CNN uh, story, and it was about a comedian that grew up in a Christian home He did everything right, quote unquote. He was uh, abstinent before marriage. He got married. He never did drugs. He he never drank uh, so that he would get drunk. And when he got married, he thought, well, this is it. Like, this is heaven right here on earth. And he got married and everything was good for a while. He was then a comedian, a stand-up comedian, still is to this day. And at some point in his marriage, things didn't go quite the way he wanted. And his wife left him for another man. What would you do in that situation? I'll tell you what he did. He walked away from Jesus because God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Literally what he says. Y'all, that's in us. That's in every single one of us. That we, in our human nature, believe that we've struck some sort of a deal with God as if to say, I'll be obedient if you do this. I'll go here if you do all this over here. But let me be clear. We have struck no deal with God. He has no obligation to hold up to any sort of idea of a contract that we think he signed one day. He didn't sign a contract. He instead made a covenant with his people that said, I'm gonna love you the way I've always loved my people with an agape, self-sacrificing kind of love for your benefit and my cost. I get nothing out of this, but I'm gonna love you no matter what because he is rich in love, not because we are. No, we were his enemies. We were hostile. We were running in the opposite direction and he came for us to bring this down to where we might live a little bit closer. We may not be thinking about leaving our husband or our wife, not today, because they didn't do X, Y, or Z, or because God didn't hold up some, uh, some end of the bargain. But I was doing premarital counseling one time, not with anybody in our church, so don't start going, ooh, was it you, ooh, was it you? Okay, so you just relieve, your, relieve yourself of that. 
But I was doing premarital counseling one time and, and the couple wanted to do a certain thing to obey Christ. And I thought, man, that's a great idea. You should do that. And I just said, why do you want to do that? And they said, well, I think my life will end up turning out better that way. And I said, true. But if you do this so that your life works out, what happens when your life doesn't work out? You're probably not going to want to obey Jesus at that point. Instead, we obey Jesus because he's worthy of our obedience. We, we love Jesus because he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. It's, an, it's a mark of our love for him. It's no wonder that Jesus is pinning Peter down on what kind of love he truly has. But he's not done, and neither are we. I know you want to be, but we're not there yet. I know your kids want to be, but we're not there yet. Look, our, our lives may not quote unquote work out, but this call is to continue to love him and to keep following him. Look at Peter's reaction to what Peter says in verse 20 through 22. Peter turned and saw the disciples. Now at some point they get up from breakfast, right? They're walking along the beach. Sunrise has come. Breakfast is over. Their belly is full. Just Jesus and Peter hanging out on the beach when they're have, finishing this conversation. And at some point, Peter looks over their shoulder and sees a shadow. And that shadow's name is John. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table, you know, the one that proved his loyalty to Jesus, unlike Peter. The one has been reclining at the table close to him and said to him, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, hey, Lord, what about him? I know you said I'm going to die like a crazy bad death. Him too? He would like to die. Like, that's Peter, right? He's, he's walking along. He's got this terrible prophecy over him. And he goes, how about this guy? Would he, you got something stored up for him? And Jesus looks at him and says, verse 22, if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus continues to put Peter on a mission. See, we could compare ourselves to each other Oh, you're more gifted at this. You're more hospitable at this. You're more loving than this. We can compare ourselves to people, but what that's going to do is two things. It's gonna rob us of joy and gratitude because of the way God made us, but it's also gonna take us off mission. Those are the two things that'll happen. It'll rob us of joy and it'll take us and rob us of the mission that God has for us. Maybe my life isn't designed to look exactly like John Evans' life, specifically because he's front row. I would never be front row. Like maybe my life isn't designed to look like someone else's. Maybe it's designed to be something different on purpose. So where does John leave us? Kind of in an interesting part, in an interesting spot. You would think like there's other ways to kind of end this book and to end this sermon series. But he, he ends it this way. Verse 23. So, after Jesus said to Peter about John, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You keep on following Pete. You keep your eye on me. You keep your affection on me. And all this other stuff won't matter as long as you keep on following me. Verse 23. So the saying spread abroad amongst the brothers that this disciple was not to die, this John. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Verse 24 and 25. 
This is the disciple. This is John who is bearing witness about these things, who's written these things, and we know that his testimony true is true. John is basically saying, if you got issue with all that's been written, come and talk to me. I'll tell you right out, this is all true. In verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But before we get our imagination just caught up into that beautiful last verse, what is this about, but he didn't really say that? Isn't that us? Isn't there one last lesson that John wants to teach us about our human nature that we assume so much about God's character based on what somebody else told us? We assume so much about what somebody else said that Jesus was gonna do or not gonna do or what he promised you or what he didn't promise you based on what other people have said. And so there could be a, a million books written on this, John would say. There could be a, a, a million, like a, way more than a million. It could fill the whole world and not tell you all that Jesus did. Isn't there a subtle invitation? But be rooted in what's written here. Not in each other's words about Jesus, be rooted in this book that was written because this testimony is true. Isn't there just one last invite for us that if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to obey Jesus and love him through obedience, how else will we do so if not dedicating our lives to this testimony and to the author of this testimony, not John, but Jesus? Well, here we are. We should not assume on God, that's for sure. But more than that, we're at the end of our journey through John. 61 sermons, including Good Friday, through John. It's a lot of days, it's a lot of prep time, it's a lot of listening, it's a lot of podcasts, it's a lot of video casts, what is that called, I don't know. It's a lot of dedicated time to one book. And there is something about this book. Some people call it the greatest literary piece of all time. This Gospel of John paints Jesus as the unmistakable Messiah, the one in whom we must believe if we are going to have life. And what kind of life is that? It is a life that's free from misunderstanding? No. Is it a life that's free from suffering? Well, we can look at Jesus' life and go, no. We can look at that prophecy over Peter and go, no. Our lives will not be free from those things, but our lives can and will be full. Remember that in John 10? That your life can be full because Jesus came to give us a full life? No, we can have an abundant life if we do one thing. The very thing that this book was set out for us to do. That we may believe. That we may put our trust that life is found in no one else except Jesus of Nazareth. The one who came, the one who conquered, the one who doesn't give up on us. That Messiah, that one, that's where life is found again and again. So, Grove, Grove Church, those that call this place home, those that are just checking out to see if this is gonna be home, those that are away today may listen to this at another time. May our faith never waver in the name of Jesus, no matter what comes your way. Y'all listen, no matter what comes your way, because it's coming. 
No matter what comes your way, may we entrust ourselves to the loving, particular care of Jesus. No matter if our fate is like Peter or if our fate is like John. One that may die imminently or one that may live until he comes back. Either way, may we find life that is truly life following Jesus in all of life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. So grateful for the book of John. So grateful that you would entrust us with your word and trust everybody that's preached a gospel out of the book of John that we would be entrusted to not just feast on you ourselves, but then just spread that bread around. Spread those loaves and that fish around so that we can all feast upon who you are. We're grateful for that opportunity. Father, would you, would you help us? 61 sermons is a lot. Maybe we could just learn one thing, grasp one thing for these next several months or days or hours even, that we may entrust ourselves to you, the one that doesn't promise good life here and now, but promises eternal life forever and ever with you. Would you help us trust? Would you help us remember the good news that you've come for us? Father, would you by your spirit, remind us of these things and may we be emboldened by your goodness, by your presence. May we be emboldened and comforted of your goodness. May we be emboldened by this true reality that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And that word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Lord Jesus, help us. You come to dwell amongst us. May we never forget that beautiful truth. May we live like you're here because truly you are. In Christ's name, amen.